1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. And welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney
2: this week the chemicals that run our sex lives hormones are the driving force behind reproduction and are what makes us able and willing to go about making babies we follow some of these hormones to hear how they have an influence from birth to death and also some unexpected consequences like perhaps the recent credit crunch
1: plus in the news what Phili has revealed about the comet that it touched down on how the bugs in your gut might be making you moody and the key to making your hamster happy.
3: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKFast.co.uk
1: In November last year, scientists from the European Space Agency achieved the first ever landing of a probe on a comet when Philae touched down on the surface of 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko.
2: You love saying that, Chris. This week, the Journal Science are publishing seven key papers detailing the discoveries made by Philae on the surface of this comet. It's more than 4.5 billion years old, and it's assembled from the same stuff that spawned our planet.
1: Earlier this week, I spoke to two of the mission scientists about the results. Up first, Andrew Coates from
3: UCL's Mullard Space Science Laboratory. So one of these papers is actually talking about the strength of the comet, and it was, it was a hard surface, but underneath a much softer surface. Which seems to be stuff which has come out in the um, cometary eruptions which are going on all the time to produce the cometary coma and the tail and everything. Right, so, so just
1: sort of, sort of summarizing that then, what, what we've learned is that the surface is extremely hard, like an iced cake, and it's, it's a softer, sort of meringue, stodgier stuff inside.
3: Yeah, uh, well, yes, it's it's soft, it's softer inside, but on the surface, you know, it's very hard. Now, I mean, some of this is uh, is a big surprise. You know, it's a surprise that it was so hard, but we've known about cometry crusts since the time of comet Halley actually when uh, when we had the Giotto spacecraft went went past comet Halley so one of its big discoveries was the fact that comets are dark there's jet activity there's also this crust so every time a comet goes around the sun it's sort of roasted by sunlight and produces lots of volatile material the water and so on from underneath the surface which moves away leaving leaving this crust so now we've been able to sort of taste and feel the crust to see how hard it is.
1: As well as feeling the surface, Philae has been sniffing it too, although not in the way the mission team had planned. When it landed, the probe bounced several times before it came to rest, leaving it sitting on its side and concealed under a cliff. Because of that, the drill that the Open University's Geron Morgan and his colleagues were going to use to sample the chemistry of the
4: comet was out of action. But all was not lost. What we ended up having is samples coming in through our exhaust pipe. The way we vent our mass spectrometer system is through an external pipe and we believe that what happened was when we hit the comet, it threw up a big dust cloud and we ended up basically analysing that kind of dusty cloud that was generated from the impact. And so we were able to get gas into the mass spectrometer that way and that's what uh, we call it now a sniff or scratch and sniff mode. (laughs) And what did your scratch and sniff show What we found was, is that as expected, the the primary components of a comet are, are water. You also have carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, but you actually have a lot of organic compounds present as well. And we believe this is because you, uh, the idea was comets would be kind of a, a mix of black and white basically, but we now think the comet is actually very very dark. We know that from albedo measurements of the surface, it's a very dark dark surface. The probability is is that you get photochemistry happening which then converts water and carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide into a polymeric compound. So it's a long chain of carbon, hydrogen and oxygen molecules and that's what forms the kind of crust on the outside of the actual comet. And other measurements have suggested that this is you know several centimetres deep. But underneath you know, then have the the ice and the gases and those are what then form the, uh, the tail of the comet. Chemically, what are the implications
1: of what you found could they be delivering important organic compounds
4: to nascent planets like the early Earth? The simple answer is yes. And, you know, what surprised us was is how diverse and complex the organic compounds were. And, you know, you've obviously got a lot of chemistry going on there, which means that you can build up quite complex molecules. The one thing that was a little bit surprising was that we didn't find very much nitrogen. So, of course, if you if you want to form amino acids and things like that, then you need the nitrogen as well as the carboxylic group. What is coming next then? Well, the Rosetta mission itself continues well into next year. The orbiter craft will obviously go through perihelion and will measure, um, look at what happens to the comet as it gets closer and closer to the sun and, and then comes away from the sun. In terms of the Philae lander, unfortunately, we've not had communications, I think, for just over two weeks now. The difficulty with the uh, with the lander is is that because we believe we're under a kind of cliff, it's getting the antenna in the right place for a... long enough telecommunications and trading off that with the risk of that potential damage to the orbiter craft if we try and fly too close so as it stands now the orbiter is now concentrating on orbiter science but it will continue to look for the lander and if it can it will pinpoint the lander and try and communicate with it and uh, continue activity but you know some of the best brains in in Europe are working on this, and um, I'm sure they will come to a conclusion fairly soon. And
1: yeah, let's hope it's a good one. Gerrit Morgan, and before him, Andrew Coates.
2: Illuminating stuff. And speaking of which, every night our towns and cities are lit up by that comforting orange glow of street lamps. The electricity bills add up to hundreds of millions for local authorities, but are they really necessary? Surprisingly. Perhaps not, according to new research from Rebecca Steinbach and her colleagues at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine.
5: We invited every local authority in England and Wales to give us information on... Uh any changes, changes that they had made to street lighting. And if they had made any changes to street lighting, what were the dates of those changes and what were the locations? And then we were able to use data from the police on uh, the locations and timings of road traffic casualties and crimes. And then we were able to model whether any changes in street lighting provision were associated with any changes in road traffic casualties or crimes. And are they, is the big question. (laughs) Well, so in the end, we were able to get data from 62 local authorities, which included over 25,000 kilometres of road where there had been some form of street lighting change. And we found no evidence that these were associated with increases in uh, road collisions or crimes. Given
2: that there are negative impacts of lots of light at night in our cities and towns, and given
5: that it costs a lot of money, can't we just turn all the lights off? Surely that's the solution. <laughs> it's important to note that that local authorities consider a lot of things when they're thinking about reducing street lighting. So we were only able to evaluate what's already happened. And local authorities have thought very carefully about where they want to change street lighting provision. They they think about things like how much uh, motorized and non-motorized traffic is on the road, how much other light sources there are, whether there's a history of collisions or crime on those roads. So they've chosen these roads very, very carefully. And I think it suggests that these need to be chosen very carefully in the future as well. Uh, So our study doesn't suggest that you can just turn off lights on any road uh, and it will be safe. Definitely not. And I guess in terms of public perception, you may say, look, it's perfectly safe if
2: we lower the levels of lighting in this area. But does that mean that people will still feel safe? What's the data
5: around that? That's a good question. So we had part of our project. uh, We went and talked to people in eight different local authorities where uh, they had made some changes to their street lighting provision. And we found that that came across very strongly, that people, uh, lots of people said that they felt less safe walking around the areas in which they they had changed street lighting. And that's that's a possible mechanism to explain why we found nothing. It could be the reason that road collisions and crimes aren't increasing is because less people are leaving their houses. It's very possible that that's happening.
2: Are there things that councils could do to minimise the impacts on things like wildlife and health rather than just completely turning the lights off?
5: Sure. And very few local authorities are completely turning their lights off. Um, you know, There are a range of strategies that we looked at. Turning off lights between the hours of, say, midnight and 6am when very few people are out anyway is one strategy that lots of local authorities are employing. Another common strategy is dimming the lights. Another uh, common strategy is switching to LED, uh, more energy efficient lights, which changes the quality of the light. Uh, And those, those are sort of the strategies that local authorities tend to be doing rather than turning them off during all hours of the day.
1: Certainly an interesting study, isn't it? That's Rebecca Steinbach from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And she published that work in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health.
3: In humans, estimates vary, but certainly thousands and thousands of genes are regulated by small RNAs. It could be that every gene is regulated by a small RNA.
2: In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we visit the weird world of epigenetics. How does the packing around our DNA affect how genes work, and what are all those tiny RNAs doing? Plus, a new genetic link to obesity and a mythical gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com/genetics.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist. This is Chris Smith with Kat Arney. Still to come on the programme, how T-Rex kept his teeth sharp and also why popping a paracetamol pill might be a bad idea if you're pregnant.
2: But first, you might think it's the weather getting you down or anything else in your life. But could bacteria be to blame for some of the symptoms of depression and anxiety? The human body is teeming with microbes. In fact, there are more bacteria living on and in us than there are cells in our entire bodies. Each of us is outnumbered 50 to 1 by our microbial passengers, which are known collectively as our microbiome.
1: Now scientists like Premek Berchik are finding that these bugs are not passive hitchhikers after all and instead they're influencing how we feel and there are lots of them doing it.
6: For humans it's approximately one or two kilograms of bacteria which we are carrying in our intestines. If you think about it this is a large metabolic organ which is generating many molecules And some of these molecules were shown to be uh, able uh, to interact with the nervous system.
1: And it's anxiety and depression that you were specifically studying here, because you're trying to ask, can we induce or prevent anxiety or depression in
6: animals based on what's living in their gut? Right. So up to now, uh, most of the studies performed in animal models uh, were using um, uh, healthy animals. In this specific study, we took advantage of an established model of anxiety and depression, which is based on early life stress. It's called the maternal separation, where the newborn mice are separated from their moms for a period of three hours every day for three weeks. And this manipulation changes their behavior later on. What is very interesting is that uh, this also affects uh, their reactivity to stress, that means the level of uh, stress hormones, and it also changes the way how the intestine um, behaves. For example, motility, that means how the intestine moves the luminal content, or permeability, that means how we are absorbing certain nutrients or even bacterial products, is um, altered. And what about the microbes themselves? In the first part of our study, we actually measured the composition of bacteria and found that there is a difference between the healthy and maternally separated mice. Is that just not a consequence
1: of the animals are unhappy, they're unwell, and therefore they're eating less or they're eating different foods? Or do you think that the microbes changing is having an additional effect on the mood of these animals?
6: Well, I think this is the the crucial point of this study, We performed similar experiments in mice without bacteria, mice which live in a sterile environment. And like this, we were able to test the effect of presence of bacteria. And what we found in uh, mice without bacteria was uh, that they have abnormal stress hormone levels. Their gut function is still abnormal. However, they behave normally. That means they don't show any signs of anxiety or depression.
1: Are the microbes that are in the animals normally exacerbating the symptoms then? How do you explain the fact that they don't behave like animals that do have bugs in them?
6: Well, we think what is happening is that the different function of the gut creates different habitat for bacteria. And these bacteria then start producing different molecules, which in turn can alter the behavior of the host. It's not, for
1: example, that an animal that's not feeling very happy just eats different food?
6: Well, these mice were all fed by the same food and uh, we have, uh, uh, in previous experiments, we have measured the consumption of food so it cannot be attributed just to change in their diet or eating habits. But we have identified actually several molecules in this altered uh, bacteria which are known to affect uh, behaviour. So we think that we have at least some possible candidates uh, which are responsible for this abnormal behaviour. Now the obvious question is, how does this relate to humans? Well, I think this is the (laughs) one million dollar question. So, so far there are no data in humans to show a cause-effect relationship between bacteria and depression uh, or anxiety. However, there are uh, some hints which suggest that bacteria may be involved. Two recent studies suggested that uh, microbial profiles differ between patients with depression and healthy controls. And finally, um, a study from uh, the UCLA has demonstrated, uh, uh, using brain imaging, that a mixture of probiotics, that means these healthy bacteria, can alter uh, brain connectivity patterns in healthy volunteers.
2: So if you're feeling a bit down, maybe a transpusion from someone a bit more chipper than you might help. That was Premek Berchik from McMaster University in Canada and his study came out this week in Nature Communications.
1: Suppose if you've banked your own microbes, let's say, before you became depressed, then you could have an impusion rather than a transpusion. Now some news with a bit of bite Carnivorous dinosaurs belong to a group known as the theropods Their teeth were their main weapons and were used to tear through the flesh of prey or their rivals as quickly and efficiently as possible Until now it's been assumed that these teeth are relatively simple in nature and they evolved just to be very big and very sharp which of course they were However new research suggests that there's a lot more going on beneath the surface of these teeth than you might think James Farr spoke to Kirsten Brink from the University of Toronto to travel back in time and work out why T-Rex was so notoriously deadly.
7: One characteristic of theropod teeth is that they have serrations. So if you can picture a steak knife, um, they have these tiny bumps on the front and back of the teeth and that helps to pierce through the flesh of the animal that they were eating.
0: Well, that's a wonderful image. As if Jurassic World wasn't scary enough already, Now I'm imagining all the dinosaurs with rows of glinting steak knives in their mouths. metal mouth dinosaurs aside, how do you go about finding what dinosaurs' teeth look like on the inside?
7: What I did was to cut open the teeth of eight different types of theropod dinosaur. So this includes uh, one of the most well-known theropods, Tyrannosaurus rex. And then after they were cut, uh, some of them I would grind down so that I could look at them under a microscope and look at the structure of the tissues. Uh, Some of them, I didn't grind them down, uh, but I looked at the cut surfaces with a scanning electron microscope, which is a different type of powerful scope. And some of the teeth, after they were cut, we analyzed them in a synchrotron, which actually analyzes the chemical composition of a tissue. And when you look inside the teeth of the theropod dinosaurs, they have these really kind of complex, unique structures that haven't been seen in in the teeth of any other animal.
0: It would seem that there's a lot more to these teeth than meets the eye then. Not only are they serrated, but it turns out that the internal tissues are arranged in a very unusual way around the bases of these serrations. These have big benefits for your average T. rex on a day-to-day basis.
7: So this structure actually helps to increase the size of the serration within the tooth uh, and that in turn strengthens each serration and prevents them from wearing away while the dinosaur is eating.
0: That sounds very handy to me. They must have saved an absolute fortune on dentists' bills. (laughs) The carnivorous dinosaurs are well known for their vicious teeth and yet previously these teeth had been thought to be very straightforward.
7: Typically, animals that eat meat uh, don't have as complex teeth as animals that eat mainly plants. Uh, Plants are very hard to chew, and so those teeth wear away much more quickly, and so the teeth need to be much more complex in order to resist that wear. Um, So it's really surprising that a theropod would have complex teeth as well, considering that they're eating much softer foods.
0: Previous theories had suggested that the serrations in the theropod's teeth had been caused by the strains of eating as each dinosaur aged. However, seeing as their food is generally quite soft, this seemed rather unlikely.
7: So I looked at teeth that were fully mature, and I also looked at teeth that were still developing within the jaw of the dinosaurs, so they had not been subject to any stresses through feeding. And these unique structures are present in the immature and mature teeth.
0: The main question that remains is whether the eight theropods studied are the only animals that have these intriguing dental structures.
7: I've only examined eight theropods in this study, and there are many, many, many more known. Um, So it would be really neat to look at if this unique structure is present in any other theropod dinosaurs. It's also kind of interesting that uh, the first birds also had teeth that had serrations on them. So that might be interesting too, to see if the first birds had teeth that were very similar to the large theropod dinosaurs.
1: Kirsten Brink from the University of Toronto. Her paper came out this week in Scientific Reports.
2: From the big and scary, we go to the cute and cuddly. Hamsters are pretty popular pets, especially for children. And now research this week has revealed that more hammocks and fluffier bedding make for happier hamsters. While this itself may not sound too surprising, finding a way to measure an animal's happiness has always posed a major challenge. How do you know what's going on inside their tiny furry heads? This method could actually be applied to other animals in captivity and could also be used to measure the happiness of animals like fish and reptiles. Georgia Mills caught up with Dr Emily Bethel, a senior lecturer in primate behaviour at Liverpool John Moores University.
8: People often think that Researching emotions means that you're looking at subjective feeling states. It doesn't. Emotions are basic survival mechanisms which animals have evolved over time to direct them to seek rewards and to avoid threats. So we would expect that all animals have emotions because this is what allow individuals to survive, to move around their environment, uh, to gain food, mates, shelter, and to avoid predators, poisonous foods, and so on. And how did you test this in hamsters? We trained the hamsters to approach drinkers that were placed at one of five locations in a test arena. The arena was one metre by one metre and had five holes along one side. And the hamsters learned that when a drinker was placed at one of the locations, for example, at the far right, it would always contain sugar water. However, when the same drinker was placed at the far left location, it would always contain quinine in the water. Quinine is bitter and the hamsters really don't like it. But they like sugar water. They love the sugar water. So over time, the hamsters learned to approach the sugar drinker, which they did so quickly and regularly, and they pretty much stopped responding
9: altogether to the quinine drinker. At this point, half the hamsters got a fancy home upgrade. They get extra bedding, extra hammocks and chews, what Emily would call enrichment. The other less lucky hamsters are stuck with the status quo. They all have a weekend to enjoy their quarters before the drinkers are back. But this time, there's a twist. There are five of them. There's one back in the sweet sugar location, one still in the bitter quinine location, and then three intermediates in between. Get inside the mind of the hamster. Do you expect the middle ones to be nice or
8: nasty? We predicted that the hamsters housed with the enrichments would be in a more positive emotional state and would therefore make more optimistic judgments about what might be in the drinker at the intermediate locations. So we'd expect those hamsters to approach these three middle locations more often and more quickly than hamsters when they didn't have the enrichment and therefore were in a more negative emotional state. And your thinking there is that an optimistic hamster is a happy hamster? Possibly. By definition in humans um, we talk about happiness and welfare in terms of our expectation of future positive events and our our positive interpretations of of otherwise
9: ambiguous stimuli. And did you find that the hamsters who had the nice bedding and the hammocks, they, they were more optimistic? This is exactly what we found. The
8: hamsters who'd received the enrichment approached the ambiguous cues more often than the hamsters who weren't enriched
9: i wish i'd known that when i'd had my pet hamsters they just seemed to die in about two weeks (laughs) (laughs) i obviously hadn't used enough hammocks or food potentially (laughs)
7: hamsters are
8: short-lived and that's what makes them good pets in a way (laughs) you don't have to clean their cages out for too long
9: now now we know that this or now we think we know that this test works on hamsters and we can test them for happiness. Do we think we could take this forward and, and use it across the board in animals?
8: Yes. Well, I have a paper coming out soon talking about the possibility of using these kinds of tests for examining emotions in species which or groups of animals, which are more problematic when it comes to talking about emotion states and that's the fishes, the reptiles and amphibians. And I'm proposing that these kinds of tests are absolutely uh, perfect for, for
2: use with these species as well. That's Dr Emily Bethel speaking about her paper published this week in Royal Society Open Science.
10: Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? The latest Space Boffins podcast is from the Kingston University Rocket Lab, with rocket scientist Adam Baker and a noisy test firing. There's also the new European Space Agency head on his vision for a village on the moon. We philosopher Tony Milligan on the ethics of space travel and former Apollo Soyuz programme manager Glyn Lunny. All on the latest Space Boffins podcast in partnership with Naked Scientists.
1: It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now it's time to get stuck into our main topic of the show this week and that is hormones. Hormones are the chemical messengers that control eating, sleeping, mood and very much more in our bodies. We're going to be homing in on one subset of these functions, which is the ability and the urge to reproduce.
2: Sexy Times. We'll be looking at why reproductive hormones can have some unexpected and sometimes unwelcome side effects. What happens when the system goes wrong? And we take a look at the common household drug paracetamol, which might be causing problems during pregnancy.
1: First though, to help us to get to grips with the basics, we're joined by Helen Simpson. She's a consultant at Adambrookes Hospital, where she specialises in endocrinology, in other words, hormones. Thank you very much for coming in to talk to us, Helen. First of all, tell us Just the basics. What actually is a hormone?
10: So hormones are chemical messengers which are produced by endocrine glands into the bloodstreams. From there they go to distant sites in the body acting on their target cells. And they control pretty much everything that we do. So they help provide energy for our cells to work. They're controlled in regulating growth and reproduction.
1: How do they actually work? So although we're secreting these chemicals from one place in the body to another, how do the target cells know they're being targeted?
10: So if you like, it's a little bit like a lock and a key in a door. So the hormone is the key and they act on receptors which are on all cells of the body and they're the locks and there's a specific configuration for different hormones in their particular receptor. So if we think about oestrogen, the female reproductive hormone, that's produced from the ovaries and this acts on certain particular cells in the body. So the breast tissue when we go through puberty, bones and the uterus.
1: You can therefore constrain which tissues respond to your hormone by having the receptor, the docking station the hormone wants to see, expressed on those particular tissues, which will give them the ability to see that hormone going around in the bloodstream.
10: That's right. And then some hormones, such as thyroxine, thyroid hormone and growth hormone, they act on actually all the cells in the body, so they have a much more widespread effect. So it enables the endocrine system to target appropriately.
1: And what about the reproductive system? What are the key players... In the reproductive game?
10: So, if we think about reproductive hormones, ovaries produce estrogen and progesterone, and they're the female hormones, and the testes produce testosterone, which is predominantly male hormone. And these act and are picked up by a negative feedback mechanism from parts of the brain called the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And the pituitary gland is a really important gland for endocrinologists because it controls many hormones in the body. It's about the size of a pea. And if you get two knitting needles and you put one on top of your nose and one by the ear and you press them together where they cross in the middle, that's where the pituitary lives. Sounds rather uncomfortable. And and if... um, What that can do is regulate and it's a little bit like the accelerator in a car. It tells the ovaries or the testes how much or how little testosterone and estrogen to make to keep everything in a regular balance.
1: People will be associated or familiar with the idea that if you have a a drop off in a level of a hormone, any kind of hormone, whether that's insulin for diabetes or thyroid function like thyroxine, we can make these chemicals and put them into the body to replace the missing function.
10: That's right. So one of our jobs as endocrinologists is we do blood tests to diagnose whether someone has too much or too little of a hormone. So if we're thinking again about the ovaries and if they stop working either at an early age, so premature ovarian failure or the menopause at the average age in the 50s, um, we can do tests to diagnose that and then we can replace the hormones with hormone replacement therapy, predominantly to reduce the symptoms of the oestrogen deficiency. Is it safe? It's pretty safe. So there was about 10 years ago, there was a women's health initiative was reported, which is a large study from America, which had some quite scary data suggesting there was a quite a large increase in breast cancer. And heart disease. But when this data was reanalyzed, it looks like those women were 10 years older than when we use it usually in the UK, so over the age of 60, and they were often more overweight than our British counterparts. So when we've looked at the data now, it looks like the increased risk in breast cancer is probably approximately four in a thousand women for about five years of use. If you're before the age of the menopause, there's no data there saying that these hormones are unsafe. And is there an equivalent for men?
1: Could men have a testosterone boost via a patch or whatever to uh, overcome some of their declining testosterone levels with age?
10: So testosterone replacement is available in the same way um, HRT is for women. The controversy is is whether this treatment is beneficial for men, of middle-aged men, where there's no definite evidence of testosterone deficiency. And again, there does seem to be some risks. Uh, The FDA sent out a warning earlier in this year in that there may be potentially increased risks of heart attacks, and vascular disease and blood clots in middle-aged men without testosterone deficiency who are using testosterone replacement.
1: Now, all of these athletes who are naughty and they abuse anabolic steroids, which are male hormones, aren't they, that promote the maleness, they encourage muscle growth and all that kind of thing. Do they end up with their bits shrinking because they're basically suppressing strongly the need to make their own testosterone through taking it in a pill?
10: That's exactly right. So what happens there is if, as you're taking a hormone from an exogenous source, uh, the pituitary and the hypothalamus, which I mentioned earlier, that essentially goes to sleep. So it doesn't, it stops sending the signals to the testes and that's partly why they shrink because they're not having to make testosterone anymore. And if you take these for enough years, then the hypothalamus and pituitary will go to sleep permanently and they won't wake up again.
1: So even if the person stops taking the anabolic steroid, then their testes are destined to remain like peanuts forever.
10: Essentially, that's right. And we're getting more patients referred in this context who then may need to go on more medical testosterone replacement.
1: It's a sobering message in that, isn't it? Thank you very much. Endocrinologist Helen Simpson.
2: Well, aptly leads us on to our next topic. Now, testosterone is certainly a well-known hormone. When you hear the word, you may think of aggression, lust and whoa, lads. But actually, this chemical is the ultimate multitasker, providing many different functions in the body and mind, and it has impacts across society. Recently, testosterone has even been pointed to as potentially the cause of the credit crunch. So is it really to blame? And how does testosterone help reproduction and sex drive in the first place, where Joy Nabel's by Professor Joe Herbert from Cambridge University. He's literally just written the book on testosterone and has worked on many studies into the hormone. He joins us now. Hi, Joe.
11: Hi, Kat.
2: Now, tell me a little bit about what is testosterone? What does it do? Where does it come from?
11: Without testosterone, you wouldn't be here, Kat. I wouldn't be here. Nobody would be here. The world would be a very quiet place without testosterone. It's a very simple hormone. It's a very ancient hormone, it's present in amphibia and reptiles and birds and fish and, of course, all mammals. And it comes mostly from the testes. A little bit comes from another gland called the adrenal, which is, might be quite important in women, which I guess we'll come back to later.
2: I certainly don't have testes, uh, last time I checked.
11: <laughs> Good. I'm pleased to hear it. But uh, in, in a male, it's overwhelmingly from the testes. And uh, this starts very early in life. I mean, within a few weeks of conception, the testes wakes up and starts pushing out testosterone. And that has enormous consequences.
2: So let's talk a bit more about testosterone later in life. So I do have this view that testosterone, you know, is kind of aggressive, like Whoa, a manly sort of hormone. Is it really doing that? What's the role of testosterone in what we, we might describe as aggressive male behaviours?
11: Yes, doing all that, <laughs> and it has to. Testosterone has only one function, really, in the adult, and that is to make the male fertile and sexy. Simple, objective, but complicated strategy. It has to do many other things than simply make him sexy. It has to make him attractive for a start, otherwise females won't agree.
7: Uh-huh. It has to
11: make him aggressive so he, wo- so he will compete. It has to make him like taking risks so he'll get into a fight, with the possibility he might lose the fight and be damaged. And, of course, this has huge effects on the whole of society. If you look at things we do every day, you can detect testosterone in practically everything.
2: So one of the examples that uh, I think you've you've studied is the idea that testosterone might be driving risk taking in people who work in the financial sector. Tell mm. me a bit about this. You know, was testosterone mm. to blame for the credit crisis?
11: No, is the, the answer to that. But let me tell you why. If you look at a at a financial trading floor, which is a, a huge room full of young men sitting in front of a lot of computers, what they're doing is they're taking high risk. Quickly on the basis of lots of information. Now, that's classic young male behavior. Think of a young male creeping through the forest hunting antelope, same problem, or attacking a rival tribe in order to gain access to food or women or territory, exactly the same. You
2: just got to decide, like, yeah,
11: yeah, absolutely. Go, go. So, males have to make instant decision with the knowledge that if they lose, the results are dire. That's exactly what happens in traders. Now, the problem here is control. But all societies regulate testosterone. They don't allow males just to do as they please. If they did, it would be mayhem, as you can might imagine.
2: Have you been out in Norwich on a Friday night?
11: <laughs> yes, that's a good example of a temporary loss of control. Because for most of the time, it's controlled. We, every religion, every society controls who mates with who. For example, rape is illegal, in nearly all societies and so on. Now, if you get into financial trading, you have the same problem here. You need control. And what happened in 2008 was, not that males were doing anything different from what they normally had to do, because in order to be a good trader, you've got to be a risk-taker, you've got to be aggressive. What happened was lack of control. They simply were doing it in an uncontrolled way, which is disaster in any context of testosterone.
2: Tell me about how you've been studying some of these risks and and that kind of behaviour in traders.
11: The first study we did was on real traders and we measured their testosterone and also another hormone called cortisol, which is the stress hormone, on several days. And we related this to how much money they made. And to our surprise we got a positive relationship between levels of testosterone and their success. That is, within an individual trader. Now, testosterone varies from day to day in in men, but on days when their testosterone levels were particularly high, they made more money. Interestingly, their cortisol levels were very different and they responded to the uncertainty of the market. You can measure market uncertainty, that was how volatile it is. And if it's very volatile, up goes their cortisol. And that's important too, because that has effects on risk as well. But we went on to do this by looking at real trading, not in real traders, but in graduate students. And we made them play a game which looked very much like a trading floor, they had to basically bet on how uh, their stocks did, and they got real money. Not very much real money, but they got some real money. (laughs) students, enough to make it worth it, yeah. (laughs) And what we found there, interestingly enough, was that both cortisol and testosterone, and we gave them both different subjects on different days, but both increased risk-taking. Interestingly, for different reasons. Cortisol made them light-risk more. But testosterone didn't do that. What it did was made them optimistic. Ah, they thought they were better than they really were. They felt kind
12: of good. Results, and like, yeah, I can exactly. do this.
11: Yeah. Now, doesn't that ring a certain bell?
2: <laughs> so that's really proving that testosterone is making people feel kind of good about themselves it's making them want to put themselves out there and go for it which comes back to the sex thing
11: it does it comes back to for initiative and drive and motivation so you've got to believe in yourself you've got to believe that you can you can do it and as you know one of the characteristics of young men is sometimes that's overdone they believe them they're better than they really are
2: in terms of being able to manipulate testosterone, say someone who you know, doesn't feel that they're very outgoing, is there something that people could do maybe in terms of exercise or diet that might boost their testosterone? Is there any truth in this?
11: The best way for manipulating your testosterone is to win something. <laughs> and the best way to reduce it is to lose something. If you win a tennis match or a chess match or, I don't know, get a promotion or someone tells you how great you are, up goes your testosterone,
2: and we've talked about testosterone with regards to men and what might be considered to be masculine behaviours, aggressive behaviours. I'm a lady, but am I still making testosterone, and what's what's it doing for me?
11: You are making testosterone, cat. You're making it from your ovaries and from your adrenals. Now, in males, the adrenal contribution doesn't matter very much because the testes make so much it gets lost. But in you, roughly, around about half your testosterone comes from your adrenals, other half of your ovaries. And your levels are about somewhere between a fifth and a tenth of that of an average male.
2: And is it doing the same kind of things for me, kind of making me want to get out there and feel kind of sexy?
11: Sexy, certainly. It's highly important for libido. Whether it has other effects, like it does on males, it's much less certain. But the suspicion is that it doesn't necessarily have the same effect because, don't forget, you have a, a female brain whereas a male brain is substantially different. That's the reason why testosterone in a male will do different things than a female. Apart from sexuality, that's a common feature of both sexes.
2: And can you imagine what a world might be like maybe with, with no testosterone or if everyone had the same kind of levels as women? Would it just be calmer and generally more nice?
11: no not at all you know testosterone's got a bad press but actually it's responsible for a huge amount of get up and go of innovation of motivation of excitement it's really a very interesting and valuable hormone i'd hate the world to have low testosterone
2: <laughs> more testosterone all round thank you very much that's joe herbert
1: you're listening to the naked scientist this is chris smith with katani still to come the hormone that makes people love trust and bond but first As we've been hearing, hormones are crucial to our lives, but depending on whether you're male or female, these are released in very different amounts and have very different effects. This process starts early on in the womb, leading to male and female fetuses, and takes them down very different paths of development. But with any developmental process, things can go wrong, and male reproductive problems seem to be on the rise. But what could be causing this?
2: Professor Richard Sharp runs a research group at the University of Edinburgh at the MRC Centre for Reproductive Health, and he's been investigating potential causes for these issues georgia mill spoke to him to find out how our genders are created
13: ultimately whether you've got a y chromosome or not determines whether you become a male but it won't actually happen unless you make the hormone testosterone or which we call an androgen so the male sex hormones and that has to be made very early in pregnancy by the male fetus and it's that hormone that actually transforms you into a male. Otherwise, the setup program is for the fetus to develop as a female. So we would all become females if it wasn't for the intervention of the male sex hormone in males.
9: And do we know how these androgens, these male sex hormones, work?
13: They work through a sort of a lock and key system or so they work through what's called the androgen receptor. And That's a key step in the process. So you have to produce the hormone. It has to interact with the receptor to cause its biological effects, in this case masculinization and development of male reproductive organs. And there are rare cases where you have individuals who are genetic males who have an inactivating mutation in the androgen receptor so that although they make the hormone they can't actually respond to it, and they develop as phenotypic females.
9: So the receptors can go wrong and not receive this hormone, but what happens if the hormones aren't released in the correct amounts?
13: The current thinking is that this is where most of the common male reproductive disorders originate. So to give you examples of disorders, one that is one of the most common disorders that's seen in babies at birth is the failure of the testes to have descended into the scrotum. If we then move through to young adulthood, what's even more common is to have a sperm count so low that it can potentially impair your fertility. And another disorder that originates from fetal life that we see in adulthood is testicular cancer, which has been increasing progressively in young men over the past uh, 60 or 70 years. It's the commonest cancer of young men.
9: You've said these uh, disorders are quite common. What kind of numbers are we talking about here?
13: The figure I often use if I'm talking to an audience is to say something like one in five or one in six of the guys in the room will have or will have had one or more of these disorders which i think is you know quite a discomforting statistic and they they shouldn't really occur they're they're far more frequent than we think ought to be the case
9: why do we think these are so frequent
13: i think the simple answer is that we don't know but there's certainly you know growing evidence that it's something in our environment
9: i know this is something you've been looking at quite a lot do you have any uh, candidates that you think may be quite responsible
13: yeah, we do have one candidate and it's it really came very much as a surprise and it's the painkiller paracetamol that is very widely used. We know from studies in the UK and US that something like um, 50 to over 60% of pregnant women use paracetamol during pregnancy and there have been four studies which have found an association between using paracetamol during pregnancy and an increased risk of testicular non-descent in boys that the women then give birth to. And because the, the role of androgens in testicular descent is so well established, then what this suggested to us was that maybe paracetamol was affecting testosterone production. Uh, and it's one thing to have that idea It's another to try and test it or prove it because we have no way of actually measuring testosterone production by the fetal human testes. Remember, it's inside the mother's womb and the testes are inside the fetus. So what you need in this situation is a bit of ingenuity. And so I had a PhD student, Rod Mitchell, who's a pediatrician, who developed an ingenious system to actually try and assess whether paracetamol had effects, and involves taking fetal human testis tissue, which then gets what we call xenografted into mice. So that means that you can actually use them as a sort of a, a, a test bed for asking if we give the mice a particular drug or chemical, does this actually affect testosterone production? And what he's found is that if you expose them to human therapeutic doses of paracetamol, then if you do that for one week, then you cause quite pronounced suppression of testosterone production. Whereas if you expose them for one day, you don't get any suppression. So on the basis of that work, then the recommendation is that, as current guidelines suggest, that Pregnant women should use paracetamol for the minimum amount of time
9: possible. I find that really surprising because paracetamol is sort of over-the-counter, everyone's using it all the time, that it could have such a pronounced effect. Are there any other things that you've got your eye on that you might test in the future?
13: The one thing that we know affects our health perhaps more than any other thing is our diet. And there have been huge changes in our diet over the past 50 or so years, So I would put mother's diet very much on the top of a sort of a a suspect list that something about our changing diet could be a factor that could affect testosterone production by the fetal testis. But that's speculation.
1: Richard Sharp on why paracetamol might be a headache for pregnant women. He was speaking with Georgia Mills.
2: We've heard a little bit about male hormones such as testosterone which make men risk takers and more attractive to potential partners. But that's not all there is to reproduction. There are hormones involved with actually having babies and also building relationships.
1: One such hormone which has attracted a lot of recent attention is oxytocin. Oxytocin is known to be important in women for breastfeeding, although more recently it's been suspected that oxytocin has an important role to play in both sexes in forming trust and relationships. Paul Zak of Claremont Graduate University has made it his mission to investigate this so-called moral molecule.
12: What's most exciting about oxytocin is in the last 15 years, we've discovered that's released on stimulus in the brain itself. So the brain is a target for oxytocin and its effects are increasing awareness of social cues. And It does that essentially by making us more empathic. So when I release oxytocin, I'm more sensitive to your feelings or the feelings of people around me Uh, but oxytocin we're learning the last 15 years is a key part of the adaptive human social system
1: when these sorts of social interactions are happening i enjoy a beer with somebody i go to a family event or something we all sit down we cooperate we get on that is associated with an oxytocin release from all parties and that reinforces that social bonding is that what you're saying
12: Yeah, even more strongly, you know, how do we live in these big cities in this sea of strangers? How can we walk down the sidewalk in London or New York and not be completely freaked out like chimpanzees would if they had stranger chimpanzees around them? So oxytocin seems to be this very rapid brain signal that signals safety or trustworthiness or familiarity. And there's good evidence for that in rodents and again, 15 years of evidence in humans that is functioning as this, it's okay to be around the other humans. So the cost of being around other humans is they might attack you, they might be aggressive, it might be scary, but the benefit is all the ability to cooperate with others, to find, build alliances, to protect each other, to find romantic partners. All those things appear to be enabled by the brain's release of oxytocin. So under what settings is oxytocin released in those adults? Yeah, we found, gosh, half a dozen different ways the brain uh, can be stimulated to make oxytocin. Everything from touch to watching a sad movie, to having someone trust you tangibly. So we show that by doing very rapid serial blood draws, and we can see this spike in oxytocin, and that spike in oxytocin will predict how much you'll reciprocate in a like way. So I think of oxytocin as the biological substrate for the golden rule. If you treat me nice, Chris, I will release oxytocin, and I'm motivated to treat you nice in return.
1: So why don't we have a system that just sprays this around uh, football matches to keep everyone on the same side, so to speak, uh, public transport, so no one gets angry and beats anyone up. Why don't we use it like that?
12: Right. So first of all, it would be uh, illegal and immoral to uh, drug people without their permission. The brain's oxytocin system is very focused. It's a fairly finely tuned system in ver- in most people. We've, we've tested, again, 95% of the thousands of people around the world. So if we intervene in the system, uh, oxytocin replacement is kind of a sledgehammer. And so you lose that delicate conditionality. And so if I did that, then I might make people more vulnerable to con men or to being taken advantage of in some way. I do think, Chris, one of the most exciting things about the oxytocin research is that, like all other brain systems, this system is plastic. It's, it's learnable. It's trainable. And the more we release oxytocin, there's quite good evidence in animals, that the more you become biased to release it. So uh, if we want to be more empathic, more compassionate as individuals and potentially as a society, then we can work on finding opportunities to induce oxytocin release in others. So it's difficult to make your own brain release oxytocin because it requires this positive social stimulus. But we can give that gift to others by being kind to them, by recognizing them, by giving them a hug. And that um, keeps oxytocin active in the brain for about 20 minutes. So you hug someone you like, for 20 minutes, they feel more connected to people around them. They're calmer. They're just a little nicer. Isn't that a beautiful thing?
1: And the flip side, or is there evidence that a con man or con woman are just very good at making people release oxytocin and therefore imbuing trust?
12: There is evidence for that. Uh, We've done studies on criminal psychopaths in prison And uh, on average, they don't release oxytocin. And yet they know the right things to say if they have high enough IQ. So they say, oh, this uh, was very moved by this uh, stimulus. Sometimes we use movies to induce oxytocin release. They say, oh, I I care so much about children in this movie. really touched me. But their brains are saying something different. They're telling us that they really don't have the machinery to feel empathy for others. And when you don't feel empathy for others, it's easy to mistreat them. And that's why I call oxytocin the moral molecule it motivates us to behave in positive social behaviours to those around us. It's one of the many brain signals that motivates positive social behaviours.
1: Thank you very much, Paul Zack on what he calls the moral molecule, oxytocin. Thank you also to our other guests this week, Helen Simpson, Joe Herbert and Richard Sharp.
2: To round up our show, it's James Farr. He's been worming away to try and find the answer to our Question of the Week, which was sent in by Patrick.
0: The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education, from alpha to omega. What are wormholes, and how are they created in the universe? A wriggly one indeed. So what are wormholes? Are they science fact or science fiction? When I put it to you on Facebook... I had a very mixed response. While Paul Oat and Miles Hendricks both voted for fiction, David Horne suggested that they're celestial temples where godlike aliens live. An interesting thought, but general consensus seems to suggest that they could be some kind of shortcut across the universe. So, does this mean you could jet off to an alien planet through one for your summer holidays? I think it's time to get an expert involved. Harvey Riel is a professor of theoretical physics at the University of Cambridge. Hopefully, he can help us blast off through space and time to find a solution.
14: A wormhole is a hypothetical shortcut between two seemingly distant points in space. The possibility of wormholes is motivated by general relativity, Einstein's theory of gravity, which is 100 years old this year. In general relativity, space and time are not described by the geometry that we are taught in school. Instead, they're combined to form a four-dimensional entity known as space-time.
0: While in day-to-day life, it's okay to consider three-dimensional space and one-dimensional time as completely separate concepts, Einstein's stroke of genius was to see that, when we're thinking on the scale of stars or galaxies, they are inseparably intertwined with each other. He came up with the idea of space-time, often referred to as the fabric of the universe. The force of gravity is produced by this space-time being curved. To imagine this, think of a bowling ball and some marbles placed on a trampoline. The bowling ball makes the trampoline sag downwards, and so the marbles roll towards it. Now, back to wormholes.
14: Unfortunately, wormholes tend to be unstable and collapse to form black holes. This happens so fast that it would be impossible to travel across the wormhole, even at the speed of light. To overcome this problem, you would have to build the wormhole using exotic matter.
0: While we've never seen this kind of matter, we know that it will produce an anti-gravity-like effect, pushing things away from it rather than pulling them in. This would then be able to force a wormhole open and stop it from collapsing in on itself. Unfortunately, though, to make a wormhole big enough to travel through, you would need a lot of this exotic matter. To make a wormhole the size of a grapefruit, current estimates say that we would need to use the same amount of energy that our sun produces over 100 million years.
14: Therefore, it seems very unlikely that wormholes could have formed naturally in our universe, or that an advanced civilization could make one. So, as much as wormholes are theoretically
0: possible, we have no evidence of one as yet. A real shame. I could do with a shortcut in the space-time continuum to get me to the shops and back. Anyway, I hope that filled a hole in your knowledge. Our next question comes from Louise.
2: How many people are needed to avoid inbreeding in a population? That is a great question. And if you think you know the answer, please do let us know. You can email chris at scientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can join in the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum.
1: And that is all we have time for this week. Thank you very much to Georgia Mills for production. And do please try and join us next time when we're going to be putting one of the world's newest materials, graphene, under the microscope. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the SDFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you at home very much for listening. Goodbye.